Well, good morning, church, and welcome to this milestone event, the very first time in our 116 years that we are live streaming our service. I hope all of you in our church have tuned in and are ready to be blessed. Let me start by opening in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you great thanks for this another day. And Lord, we come to you today especially as our refuge and our shield and our great tower of strength. Lord, you know what we are going through. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you indeed would uh, comfort us, that you would sustain us, that you would indeed uh, increase our faith, that you would be our protector in this time of trouble, as you always have been. We commit this service to you now, Lord. It's different for us, but Lord, even though we are not together, uh, you indeed dwell not in buildings and temples, but in our hearts, and you unite each and every one of us. Uh, we are together in spirit, and we praise you, Lord, that that is possible by your grace and your goodness. We commit this service to you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Before I get to my sermon, I want to speak a little bit to you about this uh, coronavirus that's upon us all. This pandemic is obviously larger than our church, but uh, this church is our immediate reality. Uh, the pandemic is not bigger than our God, and he is our ultimate refuge and shield. Because we can rest in his loving providence, uh, we need not fear, as Psalm 91 states, that you will not fear the terror by night, nor the pestilence that stalks, nor the plague that destroys at midday. The simple answer to fear is trust in God. It's that basic. Now is a time for faith, not fear. Trust God both night and day, and use common sense in following the recommendations of health agencies. The closing of our church these past two Sundays has been difficult upon all of us, and um, I'm included. There is nothing that can replace our our time together of learning and praising, hearing the sermon and the fellowship and the, the hugs and kisses that we so much enjoy um, and need, especially in a time like this. <clears throat> it has been the hallmark of the human spirit and especially Christians to rally together in the face of challenges such as earthquakes and floods and even terrorism. The faith bond we share gives us a unity and solidarity that arises to such challenges <clears throat> with courage and determination and grace. As Christians, it is, our, it is our sacred duty to love God and our, love our neighbor. That love often calls for personal sacrifices as we consider the needs of others before our own. You know, back in the 16th century, during the outbreak of the bubonic plague, Martin Luther uh, whose faith we cannot question, wrote these wise words. He said, you ought to think this way. Very well, by God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly garbage. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed, in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me 
and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely, as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy, and does not tempt God. Uh, Luther promoted a very balanced approach for a Christian in the time of a plague, even before they knew about germs. Church, we will rise to meet this challenge. However, to fight a contagious virus, the means of rallying is not to meet together, but rather just the opposite, to remain apart and stand together in spirit. As difficult as that is for you and me, and it is a sacrifice, in consideration of all our church family, their families, their friends, our communities, our church building will remain closed until further notice and all services will be suspended. Sunday service will be live streamed as it is right now, and the sermon can be heard even on our website. We will have conference calls, uh, prayer meeting calls as well, and one is scheduled again for tonight at 6 p.m. However, just because we are not meeting together does not mean you cannot worship and sing at your home with your families as you watch and listen to this broadcast. In a sense, we have all been drafted by our government to join in the war against this virus. We can do our Christian duty best and love and support our neighbor by adhering to the recommendations of the health agencies. This means simply avoiding people in general. You know, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, passed uh, Matilda's Law, which means people over 70, which includes me, uh, are not to be leaving their home. Uh, this means not of just to avoid sick people, but avoiding as many people as possible. If necessary to be around people, social distancing is imperative. This is necessary because many healthy people are unaware they are carriers of the virus. They show no symptoms and can unintentionally pass it on to their neighbors. It is our Christian duty to cause no harm to others, but rather to protect and to support our neighbors. And we can do this best by self-isolating at home as much as possible. This is how we can be good citizens in this war and help flatten the curve in this healthcare crisis. Our church will be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Some have asked about having small group meetings in homes. I can't dictate what you do in your home, but let me tell you, Helen and I, have canceled uh, dinners and other engagements and have not visited our own grandchildren uh, just as a precaution. I would discourage any of our seniors and those with health, underlying health issues and uh, uh, as a precaution and those who have had close contact with strangers traveling on subways and trains and those who are working in the hospital uh, from mingling together even in small groups at least for now. However, the phones are still uh, working so I encourage you all to call one another, or text, or email to stay in touch. After all, in his day, Paul wrote letters uh, to teach and encourage so we can use our technology to do the same thing during this time away from one another. And also, one other thought, while most of society has come to a halt, uh, bills still need to be paid. And that includes the church's bills. Not meeting together means uh, no collection or tithes and offerings. So please consider mailing in your checks 
to help maintain the financial stability of our church. Instead of focusing specifically on this virus and the fear and uncertainty it generates today, let us focus on God who never changes and let our spirits be still before him. In these turbulent and disruptive times, a stability and a return to some normalcy is very much needed uh, this day. Therefore, I decided just to provide some normalcy by returning to our series through the Gospel of Luke. It does have application to our present situation, and I ask that you get your Bibles now and prepare to take a few notes. I know there will be distractions at home, and so taking a few notes and silencing your phones uh, will help you focus. As you grab your Bible, please open to Luke 7, 17, excuse me, verses 7 through 10. It reads, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Indeed, may, may God be pleased with the reading of his word. <coughs> Excuse me. How many of you recognize the name Audie Murphy? Raise your hand. Thank you. He was, he was the most decorated uh, American soldier in World War II. He received uh, multiple awards and badges uh, for heroism from both the American and French and Belgians. Murphy received the Medal of Honor for Valor that he demonstrated at the age of 19 for single-handedly holding off a, command, a company of German soldiers for an hour at the Kalmar Pocket in France in January 1945, and then leading a successful counterattack while wounded and out of ammunition. At that pocket in France, the Germans scored a direct hit on an M10 and uh, a tank destroyer, setting it alight, forcing uh, his troops into the forest. Murphy uh, mounted that abandoned burning tank destroyer and began firing his 50 mil caliber machine gun at the advancing Germans, killing a squad crawling through the ditches towards him. For an hour, Murphy stood on the flaming tank destroyer, returning German fire from foot soldiers and advancing uh, tanks, killing or wounding many, many Germans. He sustained a leg wound during his stand and stopped only after he ran out of ammunition. Murphy rejoined his men, disregarding his own injury, and led them back to repel the Germans. He insisted on remaining with his men while his wounds were treated. For his actions that day, he received uh, the highest award, the Medal of Honor. Uh, these were but two incredible examples amongst many of his bravery. 
And though he was only 21 years old at the end of the war, he had uh, killed many German soldiers, had been wounded three times, and had earned 33 awards and medals, including three Purple Hearts, the Medal of Honor, both here and the Legion of Honor in France. But Audie Murphy never went into battle expecting or thinking about winning medals. In fact, Audie Murphy said, I was scared before every battle. That old instinct of self-preservation is a pretty basic thing. But while the action was going on, some part of my mind shut off and my training and discipline took over. I did what I had to do. I did what I had to do. That was pretty much the slogan of every soldier. Their service was done not with an eye towards uh, fame or medals, but of duty. Jesus has something to tell, tell us about duty as well. Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, through though the crowds and the, uh, the Pharisees are all in the mix. He then gives this little parable beginning in verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he not say to his servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and, and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? The word translated here, servant, is doulos and can mean slave or servant. Although in such a situation, a slave's life would be hard, we should not equate it with our idea of the cruel mistreatment of American cotton field slavery. The picture Jesus is painting is, is very common to the times and well known to his audience. The owner is not a rich man. Uh, he has one servant uh, to work the fields as well as to do the household chores. Such a servant has specific uh, tasks to perform to perform. That was his job. It's important for us to understand this setting. This is not about an employee-employer relationship where some words of thanks uh, might be in order. This example has to do with social order. Professor of New Testament Interpretation Joel Green points out, in this script, thanks would not refer to a verbal expression of gratitude or social politeness but to placing the master in debt to the servant. In the master-slave relationship, does the master come to owe the, slave, owe, owe the slave special privileges because the slave fulfills his daily duties? Jesus, in asking this rhetorical question, will he say to the servant when he comes into the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Knows the answer is. And does everyone listening as does everyone listening. And the answer is no, of course not. Can this servant actually be thinking, I'm finished, I finished my job in the field, so now, Master, you owe me. So serve me dinner. That would be, that'd be absurd. <clears throat> what would you think if, if Audie Murphy, having finished off a group of Germans, came back to the general and said, I did my job, now you owe me a medal, and you can take my place out there on the battlefield. Kind of ridiculous also. What about the waitress who comes and serves you dinner, uh, serves you dinner and then sits down with you uh, to eat dinner at your table, saying, I served, uh, now you have to clean up the dishes. 
Unbelievable, right? No, these people, the servant, Audie Murphy, the waitress, they're only doing their duty. And it was what was expected of them. And then Jesus brings home the point in verse 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus is giving a corrective here. I believe it again reflects back to the Pharisees and their way of thinking. Remember, this is still the same crowd uh, that had gathered going all the way back to chapter 15. The Pharisaical mind thought was this, I'll do my duty to get rewarded. We will see this later in Luke in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in which they both went to the temple to pray. Note the Pharisee uh, talks about himself saying, uh, I, God, I, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. His prayer was a boast in an effort to tell God, you owe me something for my duty. They felt their performance demanded reward. There are two things wrong with this approach. First, God does not owe anyone anything. There is nothing anyone could ever do to merit or compel God to act. All blessings, thanks, and rewards that the Bible does speak about for believers comes from God's grace alone. Second, the Pharisees were doing their duty outwardly, but inwardly they were grumbling about it. Matthew 23, 27 and 28 reads, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And in Matthew 15, Jesus condemns the Pharisees with the words of Isaiah, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. The Pharisees were performing their duty without heart or gratitude and looking for a reward and for all their looks and routines, it was all meaningless. This is duty in the negative sense, going through meaningless activities and enduring the boredom of empty routine. On the other hand, Jesus instructs his disciples to remember their place and to perform their duty with gratitude. Jesus reminds them that at best they should recognize they are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The Greek word translated uh, unworthy means owed nothing. It does not mean of little value. We could paraphrase the sentence, we are your servants, you owe us nothing. We are only doing our jobs. This is the humbling truth about duty towards God. If God has saved you by his grace, you have been bought. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. And that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are owned, not owed. We are owned, not owed. 
Our salvation has nothing to do with our duty. It is all of God's grace, and grace means unmerited favor. And Paul describes in Romans 11:6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. To hold salvation by works or duty makes God obligated to save us. And if God is obligated, then it is no longer grace, but reward, and the entire gospel comes crashing down. We must keep the proper perspective about our call to duty. It is not a call to be saved. It is a call after being saved to follow Christ in obedience. Writing an article in New Focus, Peter Many states, If the unconverted are told it is their duty to believe in Christ, then it is as sure as telling them it is their duty to make themselves alive in Christ their duty to regenerate themselves, their duty to make themselves new creations in Christ, and their duty to walk in that faith, which it is their duty, apparently, to possess and exercise. This is quite contrary to the way and means of grace. A child cannot walk before he is born, and a man cannot believe before he is born again. Faith is a gift bestowed upon sinners, not a duty imposed upon the self-righteous who see no need of Christ. Believing is the fruit of faith, not the instigator of faith. Faith is not a dead man's duty. It's a living man's treasure. It is the ring on the finger of the prodigal, a mark of sonship, a glorious gift of grace. Faith offers an excellent sacrifice, carries us into new life in Christ, pleases God, inherits righteousness, inspires obedience, looks for a city whose builder and maker is God. However, once we are saved, we are called to do our duty. And that duty is to serve God faithfully, relentlessly, and with humility. One author notes, yes, doing our duty might be difficult and demanding. It may cost us dearly. And it's not always immediately gratifying. But no matter what it feels like at the moment, the privilege of serving the master is ultimately a joy. And that transforms our duties into delights. In the Bible, love and duty of uh, obedience towards God are not tensions at all. They belong together. Uh, Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commands. Love and duty belong together. To love God is part of the great work of salvation God is doing. To be a duty-bound servant to such a master is life's greatest privilege. When we catch a vision of that loving duty, we can pray every morning that we get up. Lord, it's me reporting for duty. There's also an obvious fact about doing one's duty, but is often overlooked. How do you know who is a fireman? He fights fires. How do you know who the baseball player is? He plays baseball. What I'm driving at is that our duty can identify us. How do you know who is the Christian? He performs his Christian duty. To be duty-bound is to belong. It is to be part of the texture and fabric of committed relationships. 
whether it's amid a platoon or a, a firehouse, a family, a church, duty confers identity. Our duties are a significant part of what defines us. I am part of the family, the community, an essential member of the body of Christ, and I am owned by the one who loves me most. So what is the, the member of the body of Christ? What is the Christian's duty? In a nutshell, it's simply obedience. Obedience to the word of God by following the example of Christ. 1 John 2.6 states, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And Jesus said of the Father in John 8.29, For I always do what pleases him. The Christian's duty is to obey God's word, all of God's word. From the first step of obedience after belief, which is baptism, to one's last breath, the Christian lives a devoted and obedient life. There's no room for picking and choosing. This is not supermarket religion. Supermarket religion. What would you think of the waitress who, who brought you just part of your order? Uh, excuse me, I, I had ordered the steak and all I brought was the potatoes and vegetables. Uh, that's correct, she may reply. But I decided it would be too heavy to carry over, and uh, so I didn't place it in your order. How would you react to that? How does God react when we determine to obey only some of his word and ignore the rest? Scripture is clear. We are to obey to please God, just as Jesus did. And the pages of Scripture are filled with our call to duty in a multitude of ways, but encapsulated in the great commandment. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is our duty to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the love spoken here is the Greek word agape, which means a deliberate, self-sacrificing, and self-giving love. It's our duty, our calling, to love with that type of heart. So love starts with God. 1 John 4.19, if we love because he first loved us. There's a note on this in the New Testament recovery version. It says, God first loved us in that he infused us with his love and generated within us the love which we love him and the brothers. Love can really only be known by the actions it prompts. Vine's New Testament Dictionary states, Christian love has God as its primary object and expresses itself, first of all, in an implicit obedience. Christian love, whether exercised towards its brethren or toward men in general, is not an impulse from feelings. It does not always run with the natural conditions. Nor does it spend itself only upon those whom some affinity is discovered. Love seeks the welfare of all. It works no ill towards any. Love seeks opportunity to do good to all men, and especially towards those that are a household of faith. During these times, we love our neighbors by not only self-isolating during this health crisis, but by checking in with our elderly neighbors, perhaps offer a shop for them or just to make sure that they're doing all right. 
To love with all our soul means that our identity, our inner being, is devoted to God. Devotion is an expression of love and loyalty rooted both in duty and delight. When in marriage a spouse says, I, I've found my soulmate, we understand that they have a very deep and abiding relationship of love and unity. And that is similar to what it means to love God with our souls. One pastor wrote, your soul is meant to be deeply rooted in a loving relationship with your creator and with others around him whom he has created. When it is, then your life is full of purpose, vitality, and permanence and joy. You see, your soul, the deepest part of who you are, was created to be connected. In other words, you are hardwired to be firmly rooted in a place that is deeply satisfying. And I believe that this deep desire to connect and to be fulfilled will be truly found in Christ alone. It's also our duty to love God with all our strength. And this has to do with our physical strength and our abilities and resources. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 reads, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And then finally, our duty is to love God with all our mind. About 50 years ago, those of you who are old enough to remember, uh, there was a TV commercial meant to promote the United Negro College Fund scholarship program for black students. It ended with the iconic phrase, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And it's so true. The same applies to the Christian. I'm sure when Audie Murphy was ducking bullets and firing his rifle, his mind was very focused on carrying out his duty. He was not thinking about how the Yankees might be doing or what he was going to do when he got back home. A good waitress will be focused on getting your order correct and not texting her boyfriend while she's listening to you. And I must say I'm always amazed at the waitresses and waiters that do that by memory without writing anything down. Amazing. Christians should be so focused in our duty to God. Philippians, Paul encourages believers to write, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain the loving humility and self-sacrifice Christ exhibited here on earth. And in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we read, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is part of our duty. That is getting our minds focused and thinking God's thoughts after him. I like the way the Message Bible put it. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, 
and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without ever even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. In 1855, a young 20-year-old Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It has been said the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man as the devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. When we love someone, we want to know all we can about that person. The same holds true of God. We want to use our whole mind to meditate and contemplate the majesty of his character. Nothing will so minimize our fears than filling our minds with the thoughts of our sovereign and majestic God. By doing that, we will be all the more eager to serve in any capacity whatsoever, even if it means self-isolation, knowing we are serving our neighbors and our community as good citizens. During these days when many of us are home with more times on our hands, let's not waste it. Rather, let's take the opportunity to read the scriptures, to listen to sound preaching, and take time to praise and listen to worshipful music. And let us love our neighbors by being ideal citizens and perform our civic duties. You know, Scripture has much to say in this area. You want to know what pleases God? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3 tells us, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceably in quiet lives, in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Part of our Christian duty is to be praying for those in authority and perhaps especially in a time of crisis as we are. But even more than praying, as good citizens, we need to be obeying. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 teaches this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who are right, do right. It says, for the Lord's sake, we are to submit to the authorities, which today includes health agencies, by adhering to their recommendations to protect the citizens from COVID-19. Titus 3.1 instructs Christians 
Remind the people to su be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. By taking precautions, we have suspended services, and staying by staying apart, we are doing good and acting as good Christian citizens for the Lord's sake, as well as for the entire community. It is part of our Christian duty. So let us serve our master, not with an eye on rewards or an attitude that God owes us something in return. Rather, as servants of God, let us serve him with humble, joyful gratitude. While understanding and relishing the profound privilege of being able to say, we have only done our duty. For such a call to duty is a magnificent call because the one we serve is magnificent beyond comprehension. In closing, let me just remind you, if you've tuned in late, our church will continue to suspend all services until further notice. However, we will be live streaming the services and holding uh, conference call prayer meetings. One scheduled tonight at 6 p.m. Let me close in prayer. Our gracious Lord and eternal God, we thank you, Lord, once again for this day. We thank you for your word, which encourages us. We thank you for who you are, the great and magnificent God. Lord, you indeed are our refuge and our shield, Lord. And you call us to fear not. And Lord, it's hard at times like this, but we know, Lord, as we continue to dwell upon you and fill our minds and hearts with thoughts of you, what are we to fear? For we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the great creator of all things. Lord, we pray for your continuing protection and encouragement as we go through this crisis. We thank you for our time here today. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you and signing off.